everyone, I'm Ariel, GM of Shadows in the West. Shadows in the West is a 4th edition Legend of the Five Rings campaign that has been ongoing for over a year now. Since our sessions are played on Roll20 using short-form text, we had to get a little creative when figuring out how to best share them with a broader audience. Originally, we started releasing weekly episodes in the form of short stories, essentially dressed-up versions of our play logs in June of 2017. But since short stories aren't as easily consumed as podcasts, we had several requests to release an audio version. In December 2017, we halted the production of these episodes in order to focus on an audio release instead. It's been a long journey since then, and we've gone through a few different evolutions, but we're really excited to finally be able to share the audio edition with you. Our story episodes will be a hybrid between an audiobook and an audio drama, with the spirit of an actual play podcast. The story will be read aloud by a narrator, while each PC will be voiced by their player, and NPCs are voiced by our awesome cast. In this episode, you'll meet our cast of PCs and get to know the players a bit while we discuss L5R, our campaign, and the setting it takes place in. The 20 questions episodes releasing alongside this will give you a deeper dive into each player character, definitely more than enough to keep you busy until the release of our first story episode. But before we get into all that, let's rewind a bit to talk about Legend of the Five Rings, or as most call it, L5R. It's pretty different from the elves and orcs western European-based fantasy commonly associated with tabletop. L5R takes place in the land of Rokugan, essentially a fantasy feudal Japan. Players create characters that are samurai, or members of the noble caste of Rokugan, ruled by a strict moral code called Bushido. Bushido is comprised of seven virtues. Compassion, courage, courtesy, duty and loyalty, honesty and justice, honor, and sincerity. In Rokugan itself is comprised of several unique clans, each divided into several noteworthy families. When creating a character, players choose which clan and family their character belongs to. These decisions inform their style, worldview, and how they are perceived, or how they perceive others. Squabbles and wars frequently break out among these clans over territory, old grudges, or even differences in opinion. L5R, at its core, is a political game as much as it is one of combat and adventure, and navigating or manipulating the tensions between clans is often central to any given campaign. Even though the clans war among each other, they are still all united beneath a single emperor. In the core game, this emperor is descended from the kami, or god, Hante. But Shadows of the West takes place in an alternate version of Rokugan, the Togashi Empire, in which the emperor is descended from the kami Togashi instead. What results is of more mystical, and considerably more socially flexible, Rokugan. For more detailed information on the Togashi Empire, you can check out our master document on our website. For now, let's skip to the group discussion. First, I'll let the players introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Mallory. I play Crow, who is a ronin. Hi, I'm Hana. I play Shio, who's a Kenku Bushi. Hi, my name's uh, Chuchur James, whichever you prefer, and I play Hida Atsuri Okanabe. Hi, I'm Ellie, and I play Kunidayo, a Ishikin Shigenja. I'm Nick. I play uh, the Kitsuki investigator, Ryojiro. So the idea for Shadows in the West was kind of spurred by a desire for a different game, the one most of us have usually played, which was Pathfinder, Dungeons & Dragons, D20 Modern, basically classic Western fantasy. And I was looking for something in the Eastern Asian fantastical sort of realm, and I remembered that I've always wanted to run a Legend of the Five Rings game, and... Ryojiro's player, Nick, also mentioned that he'd always wanted to play it again. Out of that, it kind of grew into playing a game that largely none of the players had ever experienced before in uh, the realm of Rokugan, and uh, it kind of took off and took on a life of its own ever since. Yeah, no, I think we were all like really attached to our Pathfinder characters in that story, but we had some players who just weren't terribly reliable or they were just busy they didn't they didn't show up enough and they were central enough to the plot that it just sort of like fell apart and i think that all of us also really uh 
have an interest in Eastern Asian kind of fantasy. Just I know me and, and Hana especially, we've always kind of had an interest in pushing the boundaries of what you think of when someone says fantasy. Because, you know, these days it's a lot of elves and orcs and dwarves and it's just the same thing over and over again. And I was almost kind of resistant to doing an L5R campaign at first, but we ended up really enjoying the setting. But I feel like we've definitely uh, headcanoned and homebrewed a lot of the uh, the lore. Yeah, that's kind of not liking a whole lot of the lore is kind of what made me want to AU in the first place and just ask people like, how okay with something more like Princess Mononoke or Morbido are you like a more mystic Rokugan versus the canon? And everybody seemed pretty on board with it. I just wanted to add that um, when I previously played L5R, which it wasn't a... Uh, puritanical game it was it was sort of a message board hybrid i had some issues with the way the lore was presented and i really appreciated togashi empire taking a lot of that that i had issues with and just turning it into something positive as opposed to something i'm just kind of grating against the entire time i'm playing yeah i had never experienced legend of the five rings before ariel introduced it to me and i think if i hadn't entered it through the togashi empire i wouldn't have enjoyed it half as much as i do right now kind of tying into mal's comment about extending the kind of barriers of fantasy that we're currently stuck in as a culture and embracing these other different ways of using magic in your story or exploring the boundaries of reality i thought that would be really fun and it has been because we've pushed it that far i'll chime in and agree with that completely but um and back to james's point i played this as a tabletop uh, a long time ago forever ago and it was with the same group we had a, a Shadowrun campaign where they removed all magic and non-human races from which was a very empty and weird feeling and they, they took that same sort of approach in in L5R. This was two years after I'd, I'd come out of Japanese school and everything felt hilariously wrong and off kilter and the Togashi Empire is really nice in that it, it adds a lot of these fun elements, the reasons why I collected the cards and I love the art and the little detail text that it, it portrayed an interesting story of all this wild insanity and magic in a, in a wild world full of, of interesting and different things that I think the default game doesn't really bring into it. I'd like to chime in and say I've never played L5R before, ever. And I feel like if I ever played it again, I wouldn't know what game I was playing. I feel like you've created something really unique here, and it's really cool. Like, I don't think there's any other L5R game out there quite like this one. Yeah, I feel like in that way that I often joke with a few people, like Mal included, that like everyone here, as well as Mal included, that I don't even know if we're playing L5R anymore <laughs> sometimes, just because... I don't really feel like we're playing it a lot of the time just because everything has kind of become its own beast and taken on a life of its own. I feel like uh, one of my biggest, not reservations, but something that's been on the back of my mind as we've been working on preparing this for public consumption in podcast form is this fear that people aren't going to like it because it does feel different from L5R. But I don't know, the more I think about it, and the more I poke around online and talk to people about it. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we are still telling a story in this setting in Rokugan. And we have all the, the flavor from all of these clans, which is what I think is personally the most interesting aspect of the setting. It's just we're telling it in a different way, where we've got a different kind of narrative, a different kind of plot. I feel like a lot of the uh, L5R stories that I've seen campaigns in general, they're very uh, 
they're very rooted in human politics and human versus human and clan wars. And it's like, yeah, this setting is very political and this game is very political. And you can probably argue that it's built for that, but I'm excited to explore the setting in in ways outside of just human politics and inter-clan warfare, even though we have plenty of both of those things. I just wanted to add also that um, it's really refreshing to see new takes on existing game systems because it's one thing where you have, you know, your, your cookie cutter. I don't really want to say cookie cutter because that sounds demeaning, but you have your basic campaign. It follows a very strict and um, structured sort of dynamic. And I feel like our campaign is really pushing that boundary to where it's showing people, hey, you can do stuff that goes out of the norm and it's okay. It still works. You just got to make it work. What you said just now makes me think of like earlier today on uh, Twitter, Ariel happened across someone tweeting about L5R and they mentioned that if they ever, they, they like L5R, but that they, you know, they would like to see the setting explored more in terms of campaigns that focus on minor clans or campaigns that hinge less on the weird, strict social structure of Rokugan. I'll add on to that, but both of you said it's it's nice to see the stories that people want to tell explored. A lot of times we, we throw around this term in, in fandoms about AU, alternative universes. But if we go back to the roots of, of all storytelling and humanity, we see, you know, there's plenty of stories of Gilgamesh that don't reconcile, but we don't choose which ones are the canon because it's it's not a matter of which is true and which isn't. It's which of the stories are important and what do they tell us. And since we're telling our own stories with these, the characters that we're exploring, that, I mean, the universe is different, but it's still their universe. And it's nice to see that we can we can have a universe that fits around us and, and molds nicely into the story we tell. That's a good point. Especially considering, uh, you know, the at least the 4E L5R book just drills home the your Rokugan thing, your Rokugan. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. Make it what you want it to be. So Exactly. That said, the, uh, I guess the default campaign that the 4th uh, edition book mentions is the Emerald Magistrate campaign. And there's only a few real suggestions beyond that. So I think, at least as far as the GM goes and like the group, it's kind of like... You have to do a little bit of wiggling sometimes with the setting, depending on what you want to do. But that is kind of what I had to do with this game. Thankfully, there's a book that was pretty helpful with that, and that's Imperial Histories 2, which is where you know Togashi comes from in the first place, the Togashi Empire AU. And uh, it was a pretty good springboard for like exploring that and thinking about how the domino effect of what would it look like if you know Togashi is the emperor and how would everything else fall into place? On the topic of where the campaign has gone, uh, it's gone a long way. I mean, that that much is certain, and we've got a long way to go still from the sound of it. So, I don't know. Thinking back on it to when the campaign first started, it's it's really kind of mind-boggling to me. We've been playing for, what, over a year now? And um, <laughs> compared to that first session that we had uh, to now, just... It's hard to describe. It really is because that's a, an emotional journey uh, on a personal level and a character level both. So, Yeah, I've got to say uh, back when we first started um, revisiting our session logs to retrofit them as stories, and this was even back in like 
God, I don't know, I think it was June or July of 2017, the evolution of how we wrote together and how our characters interacted with one another from the prologue to, God, I guess it was Kitsune Mori where we stopped and started to focus on podcast stuff. It's amazing just that we've played this consistently this long, but also it's just so cool to go back and look at what we have written together and to see how we have learned to write with one another and write in a way that complements one another. All of our characters are so incredibly different, but they just have like developed these wonderful, weird, nuanced relationships with one another. And it feels organic at the end of the day because they it's been given enough time to grow in that way because we've been playing for over a year. So, <laughs> and that's that's really true too. I mean, just thinking about the way that uh, Atsu interacted with everybody at the very beginning of the game. I mean, it's just like you said. It, everybody has developed their own way of interaction and and uh, collaborating, both as players and but more as characters is what I'm talking about. And I, I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to say that it's really impressive to think about. I, I hadn't considered that before you said it, but it makes me smile because it's like watching a, a plant grow or, you know. A really invasive plant that has a million branches and won't stop. It's a samurai chow garden. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, Mal and I actually commented on this right when we started editing the logs, was that when I was moving the log from Roll20 into Google Docs, this entire thing is probably, how long was it? it it's longer than a Harry Potter novel. Yeah, uh, first season, whatever we're going to call it, from the prologue to the end of Minor Court, which is where summer break happens. And then we move on to uh, Winter Court. But from the prologue to Minor Court, it was the length of, I think, two of the first Harry Potter book. Yeah, and it's just mind-boggling. It doesn't feel like that much when we're playing it. But then as I'm going through these logs, like the prologue episodes, each of them, there's only five of them as I cut them into logs. But once we get to Kitsune Mori, we're up to like... I think it was like 17 parts that I had to cut it up. It's just amazing to see how not only our characters, but we all have like grown as, as writers. I feel like, like everyone has improved so much in the year that we've been playing together. And it, it's just really cool to see. I, I just wanted to add that um not ever playing L5R before, like I said earlier, and not knowing anything about the setting, not knowing where we would end up from when we started, when we started, I had I had no idea what anybody's characters were going to be like. I had no idea what the world was going to be like. And uh, not we're talking about how our characters have grown together. Not only that, but the story itself has kind of grown and taken on a crazy life of its own. I, I never would have imagined that we'd end up in a in this empire spanning kind of massive storyline, which is what it feels like now. Honestly, me neither. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of become a hydra in that way i gotta say yeah it like you said and you said um invasive species of plant like <laughs> some horrible termite that the <laughs> there's no predator for and it's just destroying everything You're really selling this in a really great way in a really everybody likes action right samurai termite i guess another way to put it is it's it's um a beautiful forest that has really just uh taken over the aftermath 
of a horrible accent like like Chernobyl. <laughs> it's the exclusion zone. Yeah. Full of foxes. Full of foxes everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Wildlife is taking over like we never expected. Hooray. When we did start, we our characters, of course, wouldn't know how to deal with each other, but by now they're they know each other even if they don't always have the best of relationships with each other. And and I guess more so than many of them, you, you have you know a kid who who just left home for his first time, and he's 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 in a vulnerable spot, and he's growing up a bit with them too. And and no spoilers, but he's I, I like Jiro because I have to sit and, and think probably two to four hours a week exactly how this kid is going to be dealing with the stuff that's going on around him. And uh, his recent moment of clarity, he's he's realizing his place in the world and the sort of people he's with. And it, it struck him that who he's surrounded by, and it, it helps that, you know, everybody's characters have become so amazing over, over the last, I mean, even the last story arc has been incredible growth for everybody. So I, that's interesting. And at the pace it happens, cause I'm used to more of a, an actual tabletop with people sitting around and the personal interplay and how this works here. It's more of a, a collaborative creative effort, like writing together and it, I think it brings out a way higher quality story and experience that way. It's it's interesting as someone who who hasn't really used something like Roll Twenty to to role play much. Yeah, I would say um, that's one of the things I like about Roll Twenty that way is uh, for me at least. I feel like I can kind of pace things better. Like I've I've joked a few times about like I could probably never GM L five R with physical sheets just because shuffling through NPC sheets alone would be a nightmare. And I feel like having that buffer of being able to do like multiple scenes and, you know, switch who you're speaking as and typing as um, makes it a lot easier for me to handle more convoluted or intricate stories and keep track of them. Exactly. As I was saying that, yes. (laughs) After what we've like done with all, with all of our writing in Roll20, I don't know if I could get into a tabletop over a table in the same way, I don't know if I could get as invested in a story if it was just us saying our actions and then rolling some dice. It's fun being like around a table with people, with your friends, but at the same time, like Paolo said, uh, a collaborative, creative effort. Yeah, we are uh, the only other campaign we're doing right now, at least like not on Roll20, is a Blades in the Dark campaign, and that's me and Ariel and some of our friends. And I love it. And I I think that everybody in that campaign is very creative. And we've definitely done a lot of like out of character brainstorming about character motivations or stuff between sessions together, how their relationships grow and stuff like that. And I love it. Um, But it's just a different kind of, it's definitely a different kind of relationship than the, than the relationship I have with campaigns that I do in roll 20. And I'm sure that's just a personal preference thing to an extent, but being able to sit and really think and write about what the character is doing versus having to channel it through my voice and my body. It it lets me picture them more clearly and more separate from myself, which I think allows us all to kind of push the line a little bit more than if we were just doing it around a table. Yeah. I feel like I'm writing a character rather than playing a character, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, like that that difference between playing a character versus writing a character like i don't want to sound like i'm i'm saying one is better than the other it's just a very different experience and as someone who's like pretty shy and quiet 
and like terrified of crowds, you know, having the, being able to, to build a character like that in a, in an environment that I am super comfortable in has been so rewarding and so lovely because I've just, I've always been kind of scared of doing tabletop in person because, you know, I'm so shy and I'm afraid of, of, you know, being made fun of or, or getting embarrassed in front of people, even my friends, because I'm an anxious mess. But like being able to, to show Shio's actions, even the most subtle ones, because I, she's a pretty quiet, subtle person, I would like to think. Um, it's just so rewarding and, and so lovely to be able to do that. Yeah, I, I really get what you mean. I couldn't, I couldn't over over a table to somebody else's face. I could not say my character's lines without getting super embarrassed. It's definitely an adjustment to. Um, I've had like you know a lot of experience with GMing, so at this point I'm just kind of immune. I've had experience with like you know just starting out and remembering how awkward it is, like or how weird you feel, and it's really vulnerable. Just like any kind of role playing like that, and even if you're writing it, like you're putting yourself out there. Yeah, even the writing is true, especially in in like very emotional moments, which we've been having a lot of lately. <laughs> um, it's it's sometimes super hard to to get your character to be honest and and do what you know they would do, even though it's it's really traumatic to write that yourself and be like, no, I really, I wish you weren't this way, but you are this way. <laughs> That's um, that's crab problems that you just described to a T. I'm cringing half the time I write for Atsu. He's just trying his best. I love him. I love him so much, though. It's just like, how many scenes have there been that I will never forget where I'm, I've been like in the middle of reading like a line or an emote from Atsu that you just posted, and I just feel like my, my adrenaline spiking, like, no, 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 don't do that. But then he does it, and it's great, and I love it. To be fair, I get that way reading some of Crow's lines. Not in a bad way, but... <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah not, to, not to throw anything out there, but uh, Crow definitely gives me the same racy feeling sometimes because it's just like watching a bus that's heading off a cliff and it's can't do anything about it. You just got to walk. Yeah. Yeah. You're just stuck in the back seat listening to your iPod shuffle. Except... I'm the asshole driving the bus, screaming at myself to stop, screaming at the bus to stop, and yet it won't, and then everything happens. Don't ever stop. <laughs> oh my god. Please don't. Be Shinji on the bus with his iPod. So, as far as themes go, god, we've got a lot of those. This was touched on a little bit earlier, but I feel like uh, a common theme in L5R, because it's such a political game, is man versus man. Um, and to an extent, man versus Bushido. And I definitely feel like this campaign has a lot of man versus Bushido in a way that might, in a more traditional campaign, tread on like Colot territory. Like, is this real? Should we be doing? I don't know. This is fucked up. But we definitely also got man versus nature too. And I don't think it's like, I, I like that aspect of it in this campaign because I don't feel like it's like super ham fisted. Like, it's not like as in your face. Here's a bunch of gun people who are going to burn down the forest and kill God kind of thing. Or maybe it will be eventually. But for right now, it's it's definitely been more of a subtle kind of thing. But I, I don't know. My take is themes in this campaign have definitely been more man versus nature, man versus Bushido, 
there, I think it was in uh, Shio's 20 questions that it was brought up that uh, parents or kids don't always do what their parents want them to do has kind of become a running theme in this campaign as well, which is also kind of an inevitability in L5R games, just given the nature of the social structure. But I've, I don't think that was necessarily intentional, but it's definitely become one of my favorite parts of the campaign. It's made for some very interesting scenes and very interesting character arcs. Yeah, that is something I kind of didn't intend when I was planning it, but then I started seeing the kind of, you know, the characters I was getting. So it just kind of organically started becoming a thing. And um, you mentioned themes, and that's kind of also, like, Togashi is all about enlightenment, individuality, finding your own path. And um, in that way, it's kind of a larger theme than it necessarily would be in canon, just because, you know, Hante is more traditional, and Togashi's just weird. And except this time he's not in the mountains by himself, he's you know, his entire family's ruling the nation. Yeah, I I really wanted to uh, agree on, like, the man versus Bushido, which I feel like is is almost tied in with the man versus nature in its own way. I I would need to think about this a little more to, to speak about it coherently, but even looking at it from, like, Shio's perspective, she's, she's a non-human. And the thing that I've been playing with with her is that she's caught between two worlds kenku are caught between two worlds and it's kind of that that feeling of do i which one do i align with more which one do i choose and i feel like that's mirrored with the other samurai it's like do they choose bushido and the way their clan wants them to go the way they're they've been taught or do they do what they believe is right or what they feel is necessary I never really thought about the whole arc that we have. I, I don't know if I should call it an arc where kids don't always grow up the way their parents want them to or whatever. I, I never really thought about that, but that's really true with a lot of our, all of our characters, most of them. I think all of them. I, I never thought about that. That was, that was just like a revelation for me to hear. Sorry. It's like, wow, really? It's true. I use disappointed grandmother and mother and entire family at this point. Entire ancestry line. <laughs> Every Cooney. And to, uh, to go back to the verses, it, to me, it seems to manifest most often not as a battle of supremacy, but as a, a natural tension between two states. It's, it's not that Bushido is trying to overcome the nature of man, nor is man trying to overcome the, what Bushido means to them. It's these, these edges where they, they cause friction with one another. And, and how does that play out? What, what not necessarily wins, but how do we reconcile these things? It's, you know, we love our children and that's why we expect highly of them. But you know, that, that comes in that tension of, of, of that. And when things don't happen as expected and, and, you know, some of the cases or their, their own path finds itself different. It's how do we reconcile these things? How, how do we do this without being maximally destructive? But sometimes there's forces where they are destructive and, and those come out too, which is fun. God dang it, crow. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that came to my mind after you said That's the subtitle of our campaign. Yeah. Sorry. Don't be sorry. Don't ever be sorry. Every campaign needs the overly emotional, bushy warrior type that runs headlong into danger. And Shinjo family, Skywalker family, same thing. A hero. <laughs> sure. My hero. So we had some pretty great questions come in from the uh, Twitter as well as Discord. Thanks, guys. And I guess we can move on to those now, if we're feeling up to it. Yeah. First question is from Hannah, so I'm not sure it counts. But it's also from me and James. 
And that is, when's the Onsen episode? It's coming. Soon. Like a Valve time soon. Like Blizzard soon? Like Blizzard soon. Yeah, mm-hmm. soon TM. My my note, I, I like wrote down my answers to all of these questions. I just want to read out my my answer to this question for you right now. It's in bold. It, uh, it says, when the fuck is it, Ariel? Well, the last one we had was kind of in Kitsunimori, and that's the last time they were ever truly happy. So No, that was the beach episode. That's and true. we were not happy there. What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of emotions going on there. I don't know if happy was the permeating one. <laughs> yeah. I, Kunai Dayu, have never been happy. Yeah. And never. I don't think any of our characters have ever been happy. I, I, I said something like this in the Discord once, and just every single person instantaneously responded, no, my character <laughs> has never been happy. Well, you're playing the right game then, because L5R is miserable, and you're not allowed to have fun. Okay. But I have to say that summer vacation interlude thing that we just we never really actually like wrote anything or role played it out, but we just decided that like Dayu and Crow and Shio and a later character all had a little happy summer vacation. Alright, I really do still want to RP that. Yeah. Well the the thread is still there. They're all naked in a river. Oh that's right, I forgot about that. I lied. Still there. It's open. Okay. Um the onsen episode. Are there ping pong tables in Togashi Empire? There are now. Okay, great. That's all I wanted to know. They're a mantis invention. Perfect. I love the mantis. By uh, about about the onsen episode, when you said soon TM as in Blizzard soon, do you mean you're going to at us Saturday night, tell us to get in Discord within 15 minutes and it's happening then? Absolutely. Okay. I'll drop it like Beyonce dropped her album. <laughs> We're gonna have to pay a sixty dollar entrance fee. No, that's Taylor Swift. I was uh, I was actually thinking about this, and I think that if we have an onsen episode or a beach episode, which is another question, we should do it. Should be like a special thing where we play at like a traditional tabletop. Oh my god! Like because it will suck and it'll be great. That's a good. It's a good idea. So we'd be like roll an agility check to get out of the tub, talking through it. <laughs> Yeah, that's fine. Okay, okay, I'm down. All 30 of our NPC best friends can come and Ariel can be all of them. I'll just activate my hive mind. Let's get everyone together. We can can make it exciting. We can advertise that uh, one person won't make it out alive. And we won't confirm whether it's an NPC or a PC. Next question is from Punchvestigate, which I believe is Dakota. How many ranks in horsemanship does everyone have? Surprisingly a few. Um, I think the most is Crow at four, and Atsu and Shio have one. The rest of you have none. We're uh, we're horseless. Can I have a negative number? Because Rio has a negative number. I don't even think Dayu knows how to spell horse. Yeah, didn't Jiro like, win the haiku contest at some point by writing an angry haiku about how much he hates horses or something? Yes, how much he hates horses pissing next to him. Yes. That's right. That's right. I mean, frankly, have you ever stood next to a pissing horse? It's not pleasant. Uh, funny story, yes. Uh, one of those Disneyland uh, horses had to relieve itself, and that was eye-opening. Isn't it? You don't realize just how much water a large animal can hold, and that's all I'm going to say about it, because I'm going too far as it is. Good talk. Uh, it brings me back to the uh, happy summer. Uh, maybe I should. I do have some spare experience points. Maybe I should put like one rank into horsemanship and say somebody tried to teach Dai and it didn't go well. Yeah, you know, if they got their hands on some horses during that summer vacation. 
Crow probably tried to teach Dayu, or, you know, got her to straddle a big log and wiggled it around a little bit. Phrasing. There's a lot of euphemisms going on right now. <laughs> it's Crow, okay? Okay. Fair enough. All right. Next question is actually twofold, so I'm going to ask one at a time. It's from Dolenheim, which is Dolan. What was the first thing you decided to drop from your Rokugan TM? Um, a lot. First thing was the sometimes weird power fantasy feel of killing non-people. Like if you're if you're playing in a feudal setting, your peasants, while they might not be as high up as the samurai, obviously, because the samurai are ruling them, you still need your peasants to live. So if you kill them, I'm pretty sure someone's going to care if you're killing their peasants or killing people, period, willy-nilly throughout their province. Yeah, it, it's weird to me that the book for Fori more or less says exactly what you just said. But then it's like, but it's still fine if you kill a peasant. Yeah, I, um, I remember a passage, like, I don't remember what it's from now, about lion gleefully running over peasants with their horses. It's like, just like... Uh... <laughs> I can I can see no circumstance where that would actually make for like a more compelling and interesting thing to happen in the story. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not creative enough. It's or it's not a story I'm I'm interested in telling or hearing. I mean, it's already been told. You just look at history, and it didn't go well for them either. So exactly. I really thought your answer would be the Spider Clan. <laughs> don't we still have them somewhere? They're not a clan. They're out in. The boondocks. They're just a bunch of cursed hobos. Yeah, the spider are um not a great clan. They're kind of out in the Shadowlands. They're um sort of doing their own thing and not really recognized officially at all by anyone. But they are basically a group of um tainted or lost samurai that are kind of flying a... I can't really think of a word. Basically a copycat version of, you know, a banner. And they're trying to be samurai again. And it's not really a... Spider Clan thing like the canon, like fully recognized as a great clan. Second part of Dolan's question Was there something you knew from the first moment that you wanted to add? I think this is kind of a twofold thing. Um, the first was I made it so that LGBT content or LGBT people, period, are not really a big deal. It's just a thing. Also, on that same vein, I kind of completely ignored the gender roles bits that you find in the older edition books just because I don't care. I don't want it, and I wanted to make a game that was comfortable for myself as well as my players, and it's kind of one of those things that if you can have a land where there are kami and talking animals and, you know, all the later stuff that happens in the canon and you can't have uh, gay people exist, it's a personal problem. Yeah, just my two cents on that matter. If you've been in any Discord server that I have been on at any point in the last year, I'm sure you've seen me rant about this, but one of the most important things to me about this particular setting that we have been playing in for shadows in the west is there's a lot of stories about you know persecution of lgbt people and persecution of women and both of these groups of people overcoming that persecution and those are great and important but also they're like every single story about those things and i just like that there's no persecution there's no inequality where those two realms are concerned in, in our in our game. It's just like accepted right off the bat. It's not a big deal. That's just how it is. And I feel like it, it, it didn't take a lot of mental gymnastics or rewriting or anything to make it work with the lore. I mean, it's easy enough to just say, yeah, sometimes arranged marriages are homosexual too. And 
they just adopt a kid. There's plenty of orphans to go around. But that's definitely one of the most important things about this campaign for me. And we joke about how it's, you know, gay Rokugan or whatever, but it's really, it's not really a central theme. I mean, it's just that some of the characters are just gay or gender. Yeah, it's not really like a, I really really call it like a focus so much as it's just there. Like they just are. Mm-hmm. Which is ultimately like, you know, what everyone in the LGBT community wants is just to be there instead of being a, like, just let them live, basically. And I definitely know that feeling of just wanting to live and just wanting to have, you know, stories about, oh, this person is a hero and just happens to be gay or just happens to be bisexual or happens to be trans. And instead of it being constantly a tragedy or, you know, the barrier gaze trope or it's not really like a, like, there's no adventure story. It's just focused entirely on, you know, the coming out or the tragic something or other. Right. I mean, like you have all these love stories about a man and a woman and any any story that's ever been written. And it's not about the fact that it's a heterosexual romance. It's not about, oh, he's a man and she's a woman. And this is why they're different because of those. I mean, sometimes, yeah, but it's just accepted as normal. It's just default. And there's kind of a dearth of LGBT stories that have characters that fall under that umbrella where you don't necessarily draw attention to that part of them. It's just like <sighs> Crow flirts with a girl and sleeps with a girl. It's not about Crow overcoming persecution because she's a lesbian. It's not about, there's there's no attention drawn to the fact that, oh, Crow is into a girl. It's just like, yeah, whatever. There she goes again. <laughs> she's at it again. Anyone else before we move on? No, I just agree with you. <laughs> yeah, you pretty much touched it on it all. Yeah, you, you covered it better than I could. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Next one is a question that is really fun, but we've all been kind of stumped on it. Uh, it's from Peter V. Modern day AU. What would everyone be and be doing? Ooh, I got this tinfoil hat trailer in the middle of the woods. Conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alone, survives off of root soup, mushrooms, and the occasional bag of trail mix that is able to steal off of hikers. Pork and beans. That's not you. I love it. Should probably have a massive beard by this point, too. I love AU Dayu. We did a uh, special werewolf, the apocalypse game for Halloween, and wasn't your character more or less just Dayu? Kind of, but like at the beginning of that journey. Slowing. So before. I still, I the slow descent. I still want to really play that, by the way. I don't know if anybody else does. I do. Same. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah definitely. So, but that was before she moved into the mountains, basically. Right. That's before she spent all of her money on trying to find Mothman and became destitute. This is assuming modern AU without, you know, also being a werewolf. That does change things, sadly. Are you sure she wouldn't? I don't. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I guess there's no proof that they don't exist. Maybe that's what she's trying to prove. Next question. Mal, did you, did you want to go? So Crow actually originated in a uh, kind of modern urban fantasy horror setting that Ariel and I occasionally write together. And it's, like I said, you know, urban fantasy horror. So it's not like just human beings wandering around in the day, but it counts. She's a, she's a Chinese immigrant living in San Francisco. She's a, She's been living there for like 200 years or something. And she doesn't know what exactly she is. Spoilers. She's Kieran. So yeah, she's a Kirin, doesn't know she's a Kirin because she has her memory wiped and locked. Chinese immigrant who's been living in San Francisco for about 150 years. 
if asked, she calls herself a Yagwai, hired by mysterious forces to essentially just be a mystical janitor, which isn't far from what she would be if this was just a normal setting, I think. To my estimation, I think Shio would be kind of like one of those cool grandmas who goes surfing a lot and probably lives in like a treehouse in Washington and Portland has a lot Portland exactly drinks a lot of really fancy coffee and is a foodie and wakeboarding loud Hawaiian shirts you know the whole deal (laughs) that's my vision of her she's a cool grandma so I've been thinking about this I'm still thinking about it and I have to say I am not 100% settled on what I think Atsu would be doing but I have a strong image in my head, and it's a white smock, a nice big white chef's hat for his bald head, and I just see him making pizzas. Like he owns a pizza store, and he just spends his day hand tossing the dough, singing to himself, just having a good time. Honestly, when you said smock for some reason, I pictured, I thought you were going in the direction of like, male nurse so i'm just picturing like enormous atsu in in these like pure white scrubs shuffling around a hospital in his little matching white loafers tending to the elderly or something you kind of touched on why it's so difficult to figure out because he he would be a, a a nurse type as well that's part of his character in the campaign so it's like gosh Maybe he was a nurse, and then the stress got to him, and he retired to open his dream pizza parlor. Oh, I like that. Oh, perfect. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a nice break from changing bedpans. Mm-hmm. I'll be super totally honest. Uh, when you said smock, I thought of uh, Dr. Crocker from Fallout 4. I thought uh, plastic surgeon, but with a penchant for violence. Tiny little spectacle glasses uh, walking around ha- dark, dimly lit hallways with a scalpel out. He doesn't hurt anybody who doesn't deserve it, though. Atsu is too good for this campaign. <laughs> Agree. None of us deserve yeah. him. No, we don't. Except Kasumi. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I was thinking about this today, and and I read the news, and it, it, it struck me he would have been a he would have been a good boy. He would have been very loyal to his country and his family, and he he probably would have he would have used his talents for good. And, you know, he would have made a career out of probably working for his country's intelligence service, you know, doing the right thing. And then, you know, at, uh, at some point he would, he would come across a PP tape and bring down a world leader and cause global chaos by accident. I love it. Beautiful. That's perfect in every way. It really is. I can see that. I, I can see that all transpiring for Jiro. Like he would, he would have a very colorful background as a investigator, I guess. Yeah. Just doing the right thing, and then one day realizes that oh crap, I, I, it's go time, and and he he wasn't prepared for the the crap storm that is about to hit because because he hasn't been. We also don't deserve Jiro. No, really, we don't. Jiro is pure and good. I was just gonna say in uh, where we are in the campaign currently, I feel like Jiro's starting to kind of reach that point where he's like, I don't I don't think these people deserve me. That that's actually not true. Literally, the last episode, if if there's fallout from that. That Jiro will be the first person to to go to Crow and defend her in the courtroom oh, as much no. as he can. He he thinks he doesn't see it 
everything we see. Thinks she's like the biggest badass in the world and like a actual woman of pure honor and goodness. And like, that's the only face of her she he sees. And he's going to be like, I have to do something. Like, it's my place to do something here. I, so I got to say, like watching Jiro develop over the year, uh, year that we've been playing, I, I love it because he was so timid at the beginning and you can just see it in the way that you're playing him. He's slowly coming out. He's, he's really starting to stand up and say, no, hold on. This isn't right. I, it's coming out. I see it and I'm really excited for it. I, uh, you're turning him into grizzled hardball detective. I, I think that it's, it's interesting. I think something that's going to be immediately apparent to a lot of people is that Jira doesn't have too much of a presence in the first season because um, Nick was just going through some fun shit in real life and he wasn't able to make a lot of our sessions. Um, he did he did write some supplementary stuff that's awesome and we will post it when it comes to that point in the story. But um, I think it kind of feeds into Jiro being timid during that time. And I, I don't know, it's it, it really, I, th- I just, I love Jiro's arc because it just feels so you can really just like track his progression as a character from someone who's just kind of like fresh out of the oven to coming into his own and realizing, well, not everything is what I thought it was, but I forgot where I was going with that line of thought, but I love Jiro. That's my point. I think you got it. Yeah, you're his new parents and he's growing up with you. Honestly, parents, honestly, Dayu kind of sees Crow in a similar light, but this is also why we don't deserve Jiro, that he would go to such an extent to protect Crow and everybody, and that we really don't deserve Jiro. Yeah. Oh, you do. There's nobody better he can be with. I'm also really proud of him for developing his bitchy streak as time goes on. I just draw deep satisfaction from his moments. (laughs) Yes. Tantaclaws. What is one L5R trope or theme that you are loving and keeping? And what is one that you are dunking straight in the trash? Um, a trope I love is, I want to say, the friction between duty and family and loyalty and desires and trying to tamp them out or not and just going with your desires. And I really love, even though court can be complex, I love the game of letters and just the passive aggressive high school drama that can go on in court and just the general friction and the interplay of etiquette versus people who aren't really into that etiquette, like crabs or lion. Most of the time, just, you know, more brash characters um, interplaying with people who are really used to that sort of thing, like the court environment. As for when I don't like or when I hate, I, uh, I enjoy the friction between classes, but I don't really care that much about stories being entirely focused on that. Like, It's not something I'm interested in. I do like having it as a kind of something to splash in or include, and it definitely is a part of the landscape, but a total focus on it kind of just bores me because I I just would rather play something else. Like, you know, if you deal with something in real life, you kind of don't really want to deal with it in game or focus on it too much. So you, like, as a result, I kind of tend to focus more on the more fantastical elements as well as everything else like that. Uh, One trope that is central to L5R as well as this campaign that I didn't really expect to like, um, but that I really come to love uh, in this campaign is like Ariel was saying, duty and loyalty to one's family. I think that there's a lot of interesting friction to be had. And that comes from in this campaign, uh, the, the sense of duty and loyalty to your biological family versus your found family, which I've talked about this before occasionally is I think that found family is a really important trope 
that has come up in this campaign, and I don't know that any of us ever intended for that to be. But at this point, like at least for Crow, she's she's starting to feel families being redefined for her. One of the things that Crow struggles with the most is having duty, being responsible. TLDR, duty and loyalty to one's family, whether that means your blood relations or the family that you've found and formed over the years. And I hate the katana fetishism. It's just exhausting and dumb. That's my two cents. I would like to add on top of the uh, hating the katana fetishism hate, uh, please buff war fans. Okay, that's all. If someone teaches uh, Jiro how to use uh, Daikyu, he'll be a freaking god with his awareness. Ooh, that would be cool. Give, that is, give uh, Jiro a bow. That's Crow's ranged weapon of choice, so they can have a little training session. Oh, hell yeah. That would be fun. Put on a horse and use her as target practice. Is this after Atsu has like completely flattened him in Sumai training, or what? <laughs> yes, that's going to go into his strength. So Atsu's not going to flatten him. He's, they're just going to, you know, practice throwing each other around, or you know, maybe Atsu can throw himself just to help Jira out a little bit. Jira has a bunch of training montages with the various members of the party and the the true ending to the campaign is that we all chip in and turn Jiro into this like unstoppable physical and mental god and uh and i get to train you all at court Jiro ascends to godhood yeah the story Jiro sama teaching poor atsu how to hold a teacup without shattering it please please do somebody has to somebody next question another one from hana when will we get our beach episode my answer written in bold is Bitch, when? But also, I think the hot springs in Kitsune Mori counts. I don't think so. There was naked Sumai. Yeah, but it, it it didn't have, like, the burying someone in sand, building a sand castle. We buried a bunch of, lot of dead foxes in the dirt. That's kind of close. <laughs> does, that, does that really count? <laughs> it's a deconstruction of the beach episode. Art. We don't have to bury them. We can just have a bonfire, beach bonfire, just like oh. just like all the summer movies. Do they have marshmallows in Rokugan? Would you roast a marshmallow over that? Mm. I don't know, man. It's just meat. It is. Good talk. I don't know when, but before we have it, you got to tell me so Jiro can bring his juicy swim trunks. Oh man! So Ariel, when is it? Um, if you ever get to Mantis Islands, which I don't know if it's going to happen, but it probably will. Hmm. So, again, Blizzard Valve time. Hmm. Soon. Alright, next question. I don't know how to say this name, I'm sorry. Trollfernath? How does Shadows in the West differ in tone from Vanilla L5R, or rather, what tone did you want to go for? Um, tone-wise, there is... Tone-wise, there's less of a... basically a hard line between human and non-human. Because of Tagashi's influence and various events not really playing out the same way, like, for instance, the Kitsu were never slaughtered. Less of the five races went completely away. There's pockets of non-humans like shapeshifters that have their own little communities. They're, they're integrating into society. You know, they go to court. They want to hear your haiku. They want to wear your uh, kimono, stuff like that. And uh, as a result, it's kind of been a more mystical Rokugan. I've kind of gone for a more mystical tone or spiritual one without beating you over the head with it, or at least I've tried to, while having the mystical influence or the magic influence kind of permeate everything, like the spirit realms influence everything. Kitsune are a big part of the campaign. Kenku are later on, but the Kenku are a little more reclusive, so their influence isn't as obvious at first. In that way, I've kind of tried to keep the man versus nature dichotomy in mind, just that conflict. Like the uh, 
five races and the non-humans kind of competing or adjusting still, even though it's been many hundreds of years at this point, to the introduction of humans to their world and humans settling onto their world and showing up where there was already a civilization. All right. Next question. Delathiel? Delathiel. Does Crow have emphasis in Fox for her horsemanship, courtesy, and games, letters, skills? No to all of those, but she should, so I'm going to fix that next time we get XP. Thanks. Next one is, actually this is the last one I think, Tanolka, what's the most important difference between the Togashi Empire setting and the Rokugan of the base game to keep in mind while listening? Um, Togashi being emperor, like I mentioned earlier, makes the empire as a whole feel very different. He is less concerned with strict traditionalism. He's very spiritual, weird. He's the weird uh, kind of hippie uncle, but his influence instead of you know just being like your house at uh, the holidays is the entire empire. So in that way, he has kind of shaped everything in his image. As a result, Shigenja have more of a place. The crane are not really the kings and queens of the courts, and they don't really dominate as much. Like Their culture doesn't dominate as much, and um, everyone else kind of has a place, their own place to come in and influence the landscape. Does anybody else have anything to say? I guess the tone difference for me became obvious when, you know, you know, I went into this thinking, you know, standard Rokugan, and I thought, I always wanted to play a Kitsuki, and it's a really interesting kind of dynamic for them, but they were dragon. And uh, that was part of Togashi's idea. The reason why he treated the mountains is that he needed to prepare for the day which the Empire was threatened, because he knew it was coming. Hante, he, he, he was more concerned with preserving, not their, for their survival, but the social order. So we have to flip that where Togashi got his way with the empire is prepared for for that doomsday and, and the petty things are, are less important that it's the social order can change if it means our survival. And instead of, you know, coming from, you know, mountain survivalist mindset, he comes from people who know why civilization and order and, and, and this interpersonal structure is important and taking that out to the world as an ambassador. So it, it at least for Ryojiro, it became a very different interplay with the world and instead of being closed off from it that that mindset of of you have to just let go of the petty crap that that was something they would have had to have adjusted to as well when they went from you know where they were to living at the edge of civilization talking to people who aren't people anymore they've had to incorporate that over centuries and it becomes part of their identity too and that would be for everybody their roles are no longer how does this reinforce the social order but what good does this do for all of us so it lessens some of the the magnified interpersonal problems on that scale that, and, and makes them very different, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that does. That's uh, pretty much hit on all the points I was trying to hit too, is uh, Tagashi being emperor makes it less, like the civilization as a whole, less fiddly. Sometimes monks will come out of um, their retirement, basically, or their retreat, and they you know join alongside, like for instance, a ronin or someone who needs help, and they're more ronin in general, um, and there's a big emphasis on since like there will sometimes be couples who can't have children, whether they're same-sex couples or otherwise, or they just can't have children, period. Um, like for instance, Ronin will have more of a reason to be good or at least impressive and because they can be adopted into a clan. And uh, you know, the usual theme of a lot of orphans from war and conflicts and in this case Oni, since they can just pop up randomly. Exactly. Togashi never closed his eyes to those sorts of threats. And, and it, so that's more, you know, when we have problems, we solve them. We don't, we don't hide them. I just wanted to throw out there and it's perfectly fine to edit this out, but someone explain to me, please, how the fuck does it 
makes sense for a Ronin who has been serving with a clan to suddenly lose all of the skills that they learned in the clan when they leave. Doesn't make sense. Anyway, thanks. Yeah. 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 Sometimes <laughs> rules are trash. Pori has plenty of those. Yes. So thanks for listening, everyone. We are really excited to bring this to you. It's been a lot of work, but I think that we have some good things coming. So after this episode, we'll be doing some releases of the 20 questions episodes where we kind of deep dive into each of the characters and their players. In the meantime, you can drop by our Twitter at SITWL5R and you can join our Discord from there and hang out with us, talk about L5R, talk about your favorite ramen recipe, restaurant, anything you want. We talk about horses a lot. That was a joke. What we do. <laughs> that, was... that wasn't a joke. That's... I mean, we, we shouldn't go without mentioning the memes, too. Memes are always welcome. Oh, the memes. Memes and horses, welcome. We love to shitpost about our stupid characters. That's true. Our characters are just living shitposts, honestly. Yeah. yeah, every single NPC is a living shitpost. But I still love them so much. That's why they're great. They're just wonderful and shitty. We know what we're about. Gay idiots. And we're done. For all the latest updates in our podcast, be sure to check us out on Twitter at SITWL5R. You can also join our Discord server to talk L5R, tabletop, and everything in between. Shadows in the West is played using the fourth edition of the Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game, developed by Alderac Entertainment Group and owned by Fantasy Flight Games.